Oh, they've been great all year. They've been great since I've been here. They've been extremely supportive of us. And um, I've certainly enjoyed my interactions with them in terms of the the pre-game meetings where we talk about what's happening. And uh, I, I have nothing but great thanks for them for the support they've shown uh, the team, certainly since I've been here. Um, so I... It just means I don't have to do a pre-match meeting. Okay, that's good. But, uh, no, they've been great, and uh, I genuinely, sincerely appreciate how they've supported us and since I've been here pretty much without fail. And uh, when we don't play well and they call us out on it, I commend them on that because they should call the game. I don't want them to be homers. And they're they're honest, but certainly in the moments where I feel like we should be praised, we've been praised by them. So I certainly appreciate their honesty and the coverage they've given us. Who paid for the nachos? No rain, no wind, no snow classico. Talking the rabbits and turning heads With questions from you and analysis In your car, in your home Thank you for tuning to Holding the Highline Hello Rapids fans, you are listening to Holding the Highline with Rabbi and Red. My name is Matt Pollard, I'm coming to you on the evening of Friday, October 7th 2022 uh you just listened to prior to our intro music robin frazier's answer to uh, my question uh asking about what he will miss from marcella baboa and richard fleming covering the club and being the broadcast team for altitude tv that question came after the second to last home game of the season in which they completed their final home game broadcast of the season uh obviously the game this past saturday october 1st against sd dallas the home finale of 2022 was a nationally broadcasted game so cello and richard were lucky enough to hang out at the c38 tailgate and watch the game as spectators um got a bit of a weird show for you this week folks i'm coming back and still recovering from um, catching up on the week that I missed from being in Miami with a good friend from undergrad, and then the wedding that we joined in middle of nowhere, Maine. So I did not watch the game this past Saturday, the 1-0 victory over FC Dallas. So my good thing, bad thing, big thing will be very brief. <clears throat> and then uh, Mark is unable to join me this week as he is now recovering from Yom Kippur. So it has been a long regular season and it has been a long proverbial international break, wedding break slash I'm a professional rabbi. This is the biggest day of the year for me break for holding the high line. I want to thank Joseph Samuelson for being very good in the double pivot last week in my stead. Absolutely excellent from a tempo standpoint. So hopefully I now um, as a solo midfielder, it's a weird formation of one here this week, folks. So uh, I want to get started with a few banter topics. The two big news pieces we have from an American soccer standpoint this week are the Sally Yates report from the U.S. Soccer Federation about the NWSL and then greater women's youth soccer in 
America and really the developed culture and acceptance of abuse, verbal, and then at times physical and sexual in nature. And then we also officially have some information on what league's cup will look like in 2023 as that becomes a league-wide thing for both Major League Soccer and Liga MX as well. So we'll start with the Sally Yates report. Uh, It's been out for a week by the time you are listening to me now. There are a bunch of other outlets that cover women's soccer and the NWSL and have covered this kind of thing much better than I have. I guess the overwhelming thing for me is as detailed as this report was, as damning as this report was on the NWSL and really the inability for American soccer to create a safe space for female soccer players. I think the big thing, honestly, is that I'm unfortunately not surprised. I think, you know, we've seen too often usually men in positions of power over these women are take that take advantage of that to their benefit and to the detriment of the woman. And then, um, unfortunately, with the situation in there, they're able to take advantage of them because they feel that receiving that abuse and then not reporting on it or not commenting on it, you know, creates a culture of acceptance and a culture where, you know, speaking up against it is, you know, a detriment to you individually as a player. And unfortunately, a lot of these abusers are usually enabled by other people in positions of authority who are then complicit in that oppression. And the the oppressors and the people who then enable that oppression have historically been old white men interacting with young female athletes and it's been verbal and then that is wrong and increasingly sickeningly it's appeared to be physical and sexual in nature as well and somehow this has gone through multiple people in leadership whilst at U.S. soccer it's gone through multiple people in leadership at NWSL and multiple clubs and in some cases coaches who have had credible uh, criticisms credible accusations against them They've been removed from that current club job and then immediately very easily gone on and gotten another job in women's soccer and then continued that exact same behavior. Um, This goes beyond, I think, just one commissioner and one culture that they set. This is something that I think, unfortunately, is just almost embedded in our subconscious as a soccer society, that this is something that's accepted or something that is allowed to happen. I don't know how you address that directly. You know, I think Meg Linehan said it really good in some of her coverage this week. You know, as much as this has been damning and pointing out to the right people that we were already suspicious of, didn't do the right thing and were given plenty of time to think about doing the right thing and chose not to. I, I don't think we're getting a perp rop walk for, you know, Sunil Gulati is not getting arrested or anything like that. You know, these coaches have already already have the proverbial scarlet letter on them. They're not going to get a job in NWSL, but most of the people who were criticized in this report and probably will be further criticized from the related NWSL investigation, which reportedly is due to come out by the end of the calendar year, you know, are with people who are no longer in uh, the game because that's gotten leaked, that's gotten reported on. And then those people have promptly been canceled and rightfully so. There were two, Gavin Wilkinson and then um, Guba Gulab. Um, I can't remember the name of the other uh, guy from Portland who were dismissed immediately after this report came out. But you know, all of that stuff that's happened in the history of the Portland Thorns, and if we're including some of the domestic abuse cases that have come from the player's side on the Portland Timber side, all of that has been while Merritt Paulson is the owner of the Portland Timbers. And so, you know, if if Deloy Hansen at RSL is considered 
you know, uh, isn't a fit owner in Major League Soccer because of the recent com- racist commentary that he had, then I think it's a fair question. Is Merritt Paulson befitting to be the owner of an NWSL and an MLS soccer team in America? And my answer to that question generally is no. He's been given plenty of opportunities to stamp out what's gone on at that club, and they've just been a walking PR nightmare really ever since the you know, really the Me Too movement and the Harvey Weinstein accountability culture has come out in the NWSL over the course of the last couple of years. Um, I don't know how you go about forcing a guy to sell a team. Obviously, by the time we got to that point with Delo Hansen and Real Salt Lake, the decision was kind of mutual. And, you know, this was in the midst of the increasing valuation of MLS teams. So Delo Hansen was, you know, going to get you know, compensated financially for it. Um, so I, I don't know how you go about doing that, but I, I don't trust if if this was a Portland Timbers podcast, the biggest drum that I would be beating right now is I don't think Merritt Paulson is deserving of running these two organizations. I don't think that he's fit and proper in terms of hiring the right people. Say what you will about Stan Kroenke. Stan Kroenke and Josh Kroenke haven't hired somebody who's actively harbored a you know, a, a suspected sex offender or someone who's, you know, done the horrible things that have come out in these reports around multiple people involved in the Portland Thorns organization. So that's where I stand on that. Um, it's extremely disappointing. Um, and hopefully this leads to institutional chain change and procedures for reporting on these things and a level of accountability to where this is stamped out to where there is a one strike offense at this point to where something gets an accusation comes through there's a procedure for evaluating that and for investigating it and if it's found out to be true then that person is immediately removed from the game and then now there is a uh, is there's a culture of that being implemented by the leadership over there um and you know credit to Sally Yates for calling out the people um involved in that on a much lighter and much more Colorado Rapids focused note we did get some news this week on the League's Cup and what that will look like. So I'll just briefly go over some of the details. There's a whole article page for it with some graphics in at MLSsoccer.com if you are so interested. We do know that Major League Soccer will be pausing its regular season for the better part of a month, technically 29 days from the 21st of July through the 19th of August in 2023. Um, there's It's basically going to be a breakdown of seating for teams in roughly the top half of Major League Soccer. Um, 15 of the 16 teams in that finished top 16 in the supporter shield. The press release from MLS is a little bit confusing for me, folks. They do say, so the 2022 MLS cup champion gets a buy out of the group stage. They will enter in the first knockout round, which is the round of 32. And then one of the top two teams in league MX, the team with the most accumulated points between the 2022 aperture and Klauser will also skip the group stage. But then they say that the MLS teams ranked two through 16 based on the supporter shield finish will be seated in that. But that's then implying that the supporter shield winner is not seated in that. But I think what they mean, it's, it's the 15 of the 16 teams that finished 15 of the teams that finished in the top 16 in the supporter shield 
will be seeded. And the team that's not involved in that is the MLS Cup winner because obviously it's the 16 teams are the 16 playoff teams. And then there'll be a reverse ranking of the teams in terms of point totals from League MX combined between the Klausura and the Apertura. Um, and they'll be reverse seeded. So the um, top seeded team from MLS will place the bottom seeded team from League MX in the group stage. Um, and then, so that's how they're going to sort out the... 15 groups and that two of the three teams in all 15 groups and then the third team in all of those groups will be randomly well regionally drawn between the remaining 13 MLS clubs and then the remaining two Liga MX clubs from a Colorado Rapid from a Colorado Rapids perspective in that regard it is still possible for the Rapids albeit unlikely for them to finish in the top 16 in the supporter shield race they right now are sitting on 42 points so they max out at 45 so they would need um Orlando would have to not get a not get a result in their game on Sunday against Columbus Crew that's effectively a playoff play in game folks in case you were wondering RSL would not have to get more than a point. There, there's a lot that would have to happen. It is highly unlikely. The Colorado Rapids will most likely be one of the teams randomly drawn into one of those groups rather than one of the seeded uh, MLS Cup um, supporters shield teams. Now, where things get interesting with that is when it comes to the group stage, it is going to be regional. There's going to be four regions, the East, West, South, and Central. Most likely, the Rapids, and depending on different iterations of this tournament and other MLS teams that get seeded and how MLS expansion goes, the Rapids will probably be on that boundary later, oscillate between the West and the Central. They're probably not in the East, and with St. Louis coming into the league and with MLS probably already wanting to cluster the South teams, I imagine the South teams will probably be basically the Sunbelt, Mason-Dixon line, SEC country. So um, effectively, you know, think Nashville and down, and then probably plus Texas, maybe KC and St. Louis will be in there as well. So I think the interesting thing about that is that that could create a natural competition outside of um, – MLS regular season where the Rapids could regularly be featured with RSL if you're talking about a region like that. Um, so it's going to be groups of three and then it's going to be just two games that every team is going to play. MLS teams will be at home. There was a stipulation in there that they'll be playing at their home stadiums with the exception of some cases. I imagine if you get, say, one of the Monterrey clubs or Chivas de Guadalajara or one of the um, Mexico City clubs against an LA Galaxy, then one of those games probably gets moved to the Rose Bowl. I imagine you could put the, the Quakes in Stanford Stadium, for example. You know, I think the all three of the MLS Texas teams have a pretty big NFL or college football stadium that they could easily move to. You know, I imagine, uh, you know, if you could get a larger venue for, say, an Inter-Miami or an Orlando City against a big league MX team that would travel well, then you would probably move Inter-Miami to Hard Rock Stadium, which is where the Miami Dolphins play. Or you would have Orlando City move from Exploria Stadium to their original MLS home, Camping World Stadium. So I think I don't know that that affects the Colorado Rapids too much. I don't know that there's a any Liga MX opponent that the Rapids could face in the group stage of Leagues Cup that would validate, um, you know, wanting to have something at a third full lower bowl only mile high stadium as opposed to just having it as a sold out 
event at Dick's Sporting Goods Park. So we get to the group stage, right? And then so the Rapids have uh, the Rapids have two games in a group of three. One of those will be against an MLS opponent. And then one of those will be a home game for uh, the, the Rapids, again, likely against a League MX opponent. And then if they end up getting out of the group stage, then they would go into a round of 32. Oh, and then we also know that there are not going to be ties. So a group stage win in regulation in 90 minutes, if you will, gets you three points and then draw gets you one point. And then you would go to the shootout after that, of which the winner gets one point in that. So that would be um, effectively MLS Next Pro regular season rules from that. I think this is a really interesting format. I think it's going to be really interesting that it's going to be regionalized. I think it's going to be really difficult for some of these League MX teams. You know, if you're talking about a team that's making it all the way to the final, you know, you're effectively shipping out of, you know, you're shipping out of Mexico and then probably being based somewhere for the group stage and moving and living on the road for the better part of a month. I think that's going to make it really difficult. I'm also really curious to see what the what this means for the regular season schedule for MLS, because you're taking a month out of, you know, the prime window. If we're talking about, you know, late July, early August, the Rapids would easily have five, six games minimum. Um, and there's even been years in which they've had six or seven regular season games during that period as well. And so there's some MLS teams that are, you know, going to play two group stage games in that first week and then get immediately eliminated and then be out and have nothing to do for two and a half, three weeks potentially. If you're talking about a Liga MX team or the Supporters' Shield winner that gets a bye to the group stage and gets a bye out of the group stage and gets to go straight to the knockout stage, that's a single game elimination. You get a bogus red card 10 minutes into that game and you get eliminated. You've played one game in 29 days. So, you know, we already know that the MLS regular season is getting moved up. But then do we see the regular season extended, which normally ends right around this time at the end of October? Does this push back MLS Cup potentially? How does MLS deal with that given the international window that normally takes place between October and November? Uh, in the years in which we don't have a Winter World Cup, how does this tournament take place in a year in which we have an actual World Cup and MLS pauses for the group stage games of the World Cup? These are all really, really good questions, but, uh, you know, congrats, you know, at least we have um, some format on this League's Cup or, you know, the um, a joke that I heard from uh, one of my friends in soccer media said that the uh, this is the League's Capitalism Cup because uh, certainly the Cash Grab Cup, if you will. So we'll see what it looks like. If nothing else, folks, uh, we're going to get a game that means something for the Colorado Rapids against the League MX opponent at Dick's Sporting Goods Park, and it's going to be in prime Colorado summer. Good night for the footy. And so I'm really excited to see that. So we'll see what happens there. Um, let's move on to two games to talk about from a Rapids perspective. First of all, this past Saturday at Dick Sporting Goods Park, the Colorado Rapids finished out their regular season home schedule with a 1-0 victory over FC Dallas. As I mentioned earlier, I was in Bridgeton, Maine, sitting on a chairlift at Shawnee Peak, uh, which is a very, very small ski mountain. I could do the entire mountain in probably like three hours, not even trying very hard. Um, so I did not watch this game live. Um, and then I did end up watching the highlights. Diego Rubio with the only goal in the 66th minute of this game set up by Marco Barrios and Sam Nicholson. Very good to see both of those two get on the score sheet and good to see Diego Rubio get his 15th goal of the MLS regular season. He's now, I believe, just one behind the 
regular season club record of 16 goals. I believe that was Connor Casey set in 2009, if I have that memory set up correct. So Rubio potentially has a chance to tie history or even make new history on Sunday at Austin FC. I thought overall a decent performance from the Colorado Rapids given the opponent that they were playing. Uh, it was nice to see Darren Yappi get some minutes. It was nice to see Drew Moore in his final home game um, of his professional career, you know, get 11 minutes coming on for Giassi's artist at the end of it. And it was nice to see a win. Um, the only real negative I have is Gustavo Vallecia getting his second red card of his Rapids career in the 77th minute. I think absolutely a red card, no question for me there. And I think that about sums up his season. Um, he woke up and he, you know, he woke up and he chose violence and it was not particularly good and he has not had a really good season and he's been a very disappointing uh, signing so far for me. I'm, I've been very disappointed in how he's played and I don't give him the same pass that I would Brian Galvan in his first year or even Max this season as well because Viasia was in an MLS last year, you know, when he was acquired by FC Cincinnati and he had time to learn English and get used to MLS and get used to the travel and everything. You know, you think this would be the year that, you know, the David Goss theorem would take effect and certainly moving to a team where there was going to be a need for a center back in the second half of the season. He's been disappointing. We'll see if another year of just getting used to Robin Frazier and the system and maybe getting um, red cards out of his system uh, is something that will benefit him. We have seen for most young players, particularly for me, the um, young Latino players, that um, they are better in their second year under Robin Frazier than they are in their first year under Robin Frazier, regardless of their prior experience with the Rapids or in in Major League Soccer. So we'll see. But you know, happy that, you know, the fans got to got to see a, a home win and then go home happy and that that's going to be the last thing that most Rapids fans will have seen in person from that perspective. Happy for Diego Rubio. Happy for Drew Moore. Not much else that I can say about a game that was effectively irrelevant because the Rapids had already been eliminated from playoff contention with that game because the prior Saturday, the LA Galaxy won the Cali Classico at Stanford Stadium, thus eliminating the Colorado Rapids. I'll just talk briefly about decision day. You know, I look ahead, the Rapids are playing um, with the simultaneous kickoffs on Sunday, October 9th. All of the Western Conference teams folks will be kicking off just after 3 p.m. Mountain Time. And then if you decide to catch up a little earlier and you want to see what the East is doing, all of them will be just after 1230 our time, maybe after you're done with Premier League or whatever, um, you know, church or whatever you do on Sunday mornings. Um, but so the Rapids will be at Austin FC. Austin second in the Western Conference. Uh, they're pretty much locked in in terms of what they look like from a standing standpoint. Uh, LAFC has already clinched the shield, and then Austin cannot move up or down. So they're one of the rare playoff teams for this decision day where they're not even fighting for seedings. They know that they're going to be the number two team in the Western Conference. Um, there is a little bit of stuff that could happen depending on if NYCFC wins that could affect Austin's seeding for a potential hosting of MLS Cup that might be relevant, but effectively... On paper, Josh Wolf and the Verde and Black don't have anything to play for. That being said, I don't think that we're going to see a full um, Austin FC B team on Sunday. Sebastian Driussi is their, um, you know, big star player from the season, and he's pretty much in a two-horse race with Hani Mukhtar for the MLS MVP award. If we're believing at least what I've heard from the 
Greater Rapids Media and what people have put out talking about the award and the two of them over the course of the past two months. My sense is, is that Driussi is coming up second fiddle to that so far. So I think he'll probably want to make a statement or at the very least pad his stats with a, a couple more goal contributions in that game. For reference, Hani Mukhtar and Nashville FC have already clinched a playoff spot, but they are very much fighting for potentially having a home playoff game in the first round. And they are at LAFC, who are Supporter Shield champions. So um, certainly Hani Mukhtar has the bigger opponent and the more uh, the more difficult opponent to then shine on. Um, you know, that I think will be interesting, but uh, I would expect a little bit of squad rotation from Austin, but I definitely think that you're still going to see mostly starters and definitely the the game plan from Austin, regardless of personnel, tactics, or formation is let's set it up for Driussi to look good and to get some highlight reel moments and then definitely pad the stats, goals, assists, key passes, etc., etc. And so in that regard, I think the Rapids are set up for a difficult opponent given the quality of the star talent they have and given this is a road game, which the Rapids have only won one of their 16 road games that they've played so far this season. So we'll see what happens. Um, I, I really would like to see, there's a part of me that similarly to Austin of, hey, let's give some young guys a minute. Hey, let's rotate out some of our other guys so that they're fresh for the playoffs. I, I'd almost rather see Darren Yappi start this game than um, Robin to try and give Giassi another, you know, 70-ish minutes to get game film for the club to evaluate him about potentially retaining him or just seeing what that relationship with Diego Rubio looks like in another difficult situation against a good team. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see a Ralph Prizo get a start, for example. I wouldn't mind seeing a goalkeeper that's not William Yarbrough get a start. You know, you could give it to Abrod, who I think, you know, has gained a lot of experience with Rapids too. Um, given where Abrod's coming up, I'm, I'm not sure that... I think it's a valid question whether or not Clint Irwin stays with the club next season, given he's clearly second fiddle. He's not the present because Yarbrough's here, and he's clearly not the future because of how much the club's invested in Abraham Rodriguez. And so if, you know, uh, if Clint's going to get paid, you know, what, 130, 140K a year to sit on the bench, train a lot, but not actually play, would he rather do that at Charlotte, closer to family, either in Charlotte or for an Eastern Conference team where he's at least closer to family, I think is a valid question. So I wouldn't mind Clint getting a start. I wouldn't mind Abrod getting a start. Give me Ralph Prizzo. If for some reason, Ollie the Raz has 30 minutes in him. I'd like to see him. I'd like to see Darren Yappi get a start. Um, you know, ro- rotate the squad, play the kids, try and have some fun, try and set it up just like how Austin will probably trying to set it up so that Driussi gets a bunch of chances to score. Um, I'd like to see the Rapids set it up so that Diego Rubio can be successful and maybe tie that Connor Casey record or potentially even break it. I'd, I'd love to see a, I think a neutral would find, you know, a 2-2 or a 3-3 with Driussi and Rubio both getting two goal contributions or more, I think would be. A, a neutral's excitement for effectively a dead rubber game with an eliminated team playing a team that's already clinched a playoff spot on decision day. Um, in terms of predictions, I probably got the Rapids losing this one, to be honest. Uh, I'll take Austin 2-1 in this one. I do think Rubio ties the record for um, for goals scored in a regular season. I really hope I have this stat right, folks. Otherwise, I think Jason Maxwell and Joseph Samuelson are going to come at me if I have it wrong that it's not Connor Casey in 2009 with 16 with Rubio on his 15 goals. Um, with that, that's it for me individually, folks. I want to throw it to an interview that I did earlier this week. I got to set, sit down with Richard Fleming for the better part of an hour. We had planned initially for us to only talk for about 20 or 30 minutes and we got sidetracked. This was a uh, Richard's been a great friend for me, really, and a great colleague. Um, 
over the course of the the better part of the last decade that he's been working at the club. And we've had so many great conversations at training, on Twitter, in the press box, post-game, pre-game, and everything. Um, And I've heard so many little tidbits about his career that I find so interesting and unique. And I wanted to sit down with him and really talk about those things and ask some interesting questions that we've kind of beat around the bush on, but I've never asked him directly and then gotten, you know, a true answer. So um, some of this conversation is a non-linear meandering Richard Fleming anthology of his career and his experiences working in sports broadcasting. Some of them are his really strong and candid um you know, opinions about the Rapids, about Major League Soccer, about the game, about how to cover the game, about working in sports media and in sports broadcasting. And it was really just a lovely chat. And I've had so many of those with him over the years that I really just wanted to get one of those on record and then be able to share it with you. Um, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've spoken to him so many times and I feel like every single time I learned something new about the game or something new about him and his career. And I had three or four of those as well. So, you know, it speaks to... Um, the, the relationship that we've developed and it speaks to him as a person and it speaks to the most interesting man in MLS soccer media potentially that, you know, we went off on this and it was going to be 20 minutes and we ended up going for an hour as well. Um, and it was just a really great candid conversation. And if it turns out Richard's not going to be back and not going to be working in and around MLS and, you know, I don't see him in person for years on end and I don't speak to him, you know, verbally for years on end, then it was a, it was a sentimental and a, and a joyful way to, you know, to, to pause that and to really have, give him a proper send off. So without further ado, folks, here is my conversation with Richard Fleming. I look forward to, and hopefully you as well, look forward to hearing his final broadcast on Sunday. I'm going to miss you so much next year, man. You have, <laughs> it's, it's a bittersweet conversation that I'm yeah, looking well. forward to. It's going to be a sad Sunday that hopefully ends in three points. We'll see. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, and then we we all head off into the sunset together. Yes. So I guess I want to start, Richard. You spent over a decade at BBC in a variety of roles covering a variety of competitions, I would say. Two decades. Two decades. Um, 17 17 years, yeah. Okay, so I suppose, you know, BBC and Sky Sports would probably be the parallel to ESPN or, you know, a Fox Sports here in the States. What's working with and in and navigating through a behemoth like that like? Uh, I mean, I I started out in... in, um in local BBC radio. So it, it's kind of like, um, it's a little bit like NPR. Mm-hmm. So you've got your, your, your NPR affiliates, you've got your local NPR stations, and then you've got the national. Um, so I worked for, for a local BBC station, uh, in the South of England covering, um, trying to think which were the teams. So it was Aldershot, Woking, um, Farnborough. Farnborough was the kind of the first team that I ever covered. Uh, I think they're in the National League South, but you know, um, looking at I, I've been watching Wrexham with with my lad, and and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've I've been to the Racecourse Ground a number of times, yeah. and you know, Maidenhead and Torquay and uh, and York and Woking and Aldershot and Dagenham and Redbridge and, and and all of those teams that crop up. So I kind of you know I started right down in the the non-league. Um, if you look at the pyramid, probably sixth or seventh tier. I played a little bit in kind of the seventh tier of of the pyramid system a long okay. way from the, from the, from the glory grounds. Um, 
And so, you know, I moved into local radio. Then I moved to another local radio station, which allowed me to cover Bournemouth. Um, I was covering Brighton as well. I saw Brighton when they were uh, very close to going out of the Football League. Their last, the last game of the season, they had to, mm-hmm. they had to avoid defeat at Hereford. So, you know, um, the ups and downs of Brighton, Bournemouth, uh, Portsmouth, Southampton. Uh, and then I had um, over a decade at the World Service. So, it, you know, when you start moving up the, um, uh, to use a, 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 a soccer um, comparison, you know, when you start to move your way out the pyramid system within the BBC, you're, you're around the elite. You're around mm-hmm. the elite broadcasters, um, you know, broadcasters that were household names in the UK um, and globally, having, working for the BBC World Service. Um, actually, I was, I was on a, a WhatsApp chat with a friend of mine this morning who's the BBC's tennis correspondent. And he said, oh, when you're back in the UK in, in January, the, they've got a, a World Service Sport reunion. Um, so I'll be heading along to that, and, and Manny will be there, and a, a guy called Mike Costello, who's um, uh, for boxing fans. He's he's one of the uh, the, the kind of the uh, the leading boxing commentators um, globally. Um, mm-hmm. You know, phenomenal, phenomenal brain, phenomenal knowledge. Um, good friend of mine as well. Um, but it, it's it's akin to being. I was going to say the United. It's akin to being in a Man City dressing room. You know, yeah. you look to your right. There's a there's a quality broadcaster. You look to your left. There's a quality broadcaster. They're all, um, you know, excellent broadcasters, producers, um, studio managers, um, you know, engineers. Just it's yeah, it was a um, an incredible place to work. That you probably only again, uh, you only fully appreciate once you step away. Just the. Um, uh, the quality of, of broadcasters that were in that were in those buildings that were friends of mine, colleagues of mine um, that I work with every day um, that are now working in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, um, the Middle East, um, and, and yeah, it was it, it was a, it was an absolute privilege to work for for the BBC, and and, and it you know allowed me to to follow my passion of broadcasting and, and sport. And and that's the thing, you know, I, I didn't mm-hmm. cover just soccer. You know, I covered tennis and golf and motorsport and track and field and swimming um, and rugby. And, you know, we did American football, we did basketball, we did NBA, we did the NHL. I mean, not to the, to the depth that, that would allow me to step into a job here, but, you know, we covered, we covered those sports. You know, I was a sports reporter before I, before I kind of specialized in soccer, but you know, I've I've covered synchronized swimming as well um, in, in the past. So, um, yeah, it was just a a, a fantastic uh, mm-hmm. a fantastic place to be with a lot of very very talented people. Uh, who's the biggest name that I would know that you've rubbed elbows with, or even just passed in the hallway? Uh, Gary Lineker. Okay, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's pretty hard to beat that. Um, right. Um, <laughs> Who else would be in there? Um, Graham Taylor, uh, the ex-England manager, um, was a friend of mine. We worked on a number of uh, big tournaments together. Mm-hmm. I remember um, sending him a, an email soon after, about a year after arriving here, and we sent, I sent him a Christmas card. And I, and I said, you know, I, I put a little note in there about, you know, what I've been up to in the email. We're back. He said, I wonder where you were. 
I'd been in the BBC offices a few times and I'd not seen you. And he said, oh, you're in Colorado now. So, um, yeah, it was great, just great stories with him. And, you know, he, he opened doors. We were in Vienna for, for the 2008 Euros. And, um, and his, his, I mean, literally, his, they were like brothers, El, mm-hmm. Elton John. Um, uh, Elton John was the chairman at Watford when, when Graham was, was the manager. Um, took them from the, the old fourth division, which is now League Two, up to the first division, which is now the Premier League. Took them to the cup final. Um, they were, they were big friends. So, and, and he got us into Elton John's dressing room before the, before his show. Um, so we're there just chatting, chatting soccer with Elton John, which was surreal. And that was the day after chatting to Enrique Iglesias about soccer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, in Vienna, he'd done the, the theme music, the theme tune for, um, or the official song for the 2008 Euros. So again, mm-hmm. you know, th- this is a job which has afforded me so many wonderful opportunities, experiences that I would never, you know, I come from, I mean, it's, it's, it's a town now, but when I was growing up, I, it was a village. I grew up in a, in a village just, um, 35 miles south of London. Um, three brothers, you know, very kind of regular family. We loved sport. Um, and and the opportunities that this this very simple game has, has afforded me is uh, it's never it's never lost on me the uh, the the amount of miles that this this very simple game has allowed me to cover. Mm-hmm. Whenever somebody comments on a press box situation, or I remember um, I was in London in April of 2019. Um, we were there to see a a long distance family member who's uh, who was relocating in the UK, and my dad and I we were doing the trips around London, doing a lot of touristy stuff. And then you know we went to we did the stadium tour at Chelsea, and then at Arsenal, and then we also went to a Fulham game as well. And so you know we're going through the press box boxes and everything you know my dad's commenting like hey matt what's this compared to the press boxes and everything and you know the guys commenting on how you know there's 300 seats for people at chelsea for they want like that and they've had i think they he said that at the time that the the record requests that they had for a chelsea football game for media requests was i think just over 400 and i think that would have been a group stage champions league game against barcelona Messi's only time ever going to london i believe um for a um for a club game as well maybe that's changed since then but so and so i was like yeah it's it's nothing like this but it's not not nice and then you know he'll ask me um i started covering um st louis fc who are now defunct in their inaugural season in 2014 and the press box they have there at soccer park richard i've seen walk-in closets that are bigger than that there's you know there's one spot for the guy who's doing the scoreboard one for somebody doing the uh um the public address announcement and there's maybe two other seats as well there's no outlets or anything there's barely any lighting you know you mentioned welcome to Wrexham you know where I think the race course ground is obviously a it'd be a standard I I look at that and I'd say like oh that's a stadium in league two or a stadium in league one but then we see pictures of the away games and everything that they've had and everything you know it's these small little standing room only um you know as a fan or as a member of the media what's the most you know um almost bs pub team media environment that you've ever been in what's what's the smallest press box or not even a media area wow uh i mean there's they've all got they've all got great character and look they, they can only afford what they can afford yes. I mean, these are, um i remember that as i say the first team i covered was farnborough um farnborough town that they went to um got to the third round of the fa cup a few times played west ham when i was covering them um Took West Ham to a replay. Um, that was when the, the lower league teams could could choose to switch. 
Oh, so they, yes. So they split the gate receipt so that they could make a little bit of money. So they were drawn at home, but they played both games at what was then, you know, their old stadium at Upton Park. Um, they then went on to play Arsenal as well about, I want to say about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, that was that was long, long after my time. But I remember that the, the, the press box at, at Farnborough was at dugout level. So okay. it was on the pitch. It was by the pitch, and it had glass. Had glass in front of you. It was a very different view than you got from that elevated look that is the regular kind of press box. And so you're seeing the managers, you know, lose their 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 stuff by the side. Literally, they're they're the other side of glass as well. They're, okay. But you you're there, and you got players backing up against the, the the press box to take throw-ins, and you know the balls hitting you, and you you really literally got a a field level view. So that was, that was unusual. I've been in some very close knit, um, press boxes down the years. Um, Walsall was quite, was quite tidy. Um, Fulham, even Fulham when, and again, I, I, I did a few games at Fulham. I remember doing a Fulham Arsenal game, uh, one year. I think that was Arsenal's, uh, invincible season. Um, so what was that? 2004, something like that. With the um, press box at that time, because I know they'd been renovating the Riverside stand. Were you in the Johnny Haynes? Yeah, so it was. It was. You know, once you're in, you're in. Yes, and, and you're not. You're not going anywhere. And and you know, if you're if you've got a, um, you know, if you have quite literally eaten all the pies, you're you're <laughs> you're, you're you're struggling um, because there wasn't a lot of of room in there. And sometimes, you know, some of these new stadiums, the the lower level stadiums, you, you often thought that uh, the press box was an afterthought. Uh, it was like, oh, uh, we're going to have to squeeze some media in. Um, you know, I, I mean, internationally as well. I remember doing a game in Bratislava. Um, it was um, it was the Bratislava derby, so in, in Slovakia. And um, the crowd was so quiet that I had people turn, it was like being in, in a library. I had people turning around. I was I was sit, I was sat in the stands uh-huh. because they didn't have a press box as such for, to to kind of hook up. Um, so you were so, among the hooligans, or were there were no, there a no, row the, of no, press? The, the, the kind of the ultras, and it was a very it was a it was a derby game, but it was very very sedate, and it almost you know probably the stadium was about a third full. Um, but the players, I, the players could hear me. The players are probably 15 rows in front, and it was that quiet. The, the players are turning around and look because obviously, you know, I'm this English <laughs> English uh, dialect in a in a Slovak uh, stadium. Um, North Korea was another one where I had um, uh, I had a minder that was sat alongside me the entire time, listening to what I was saying. I was reporting back on this World Cup qualifier between North Korea. And Bahrain in in two thousand and five. Would this have been at Pyongyang at the big like two hundred thousand seater or whatever? Yeah, it is? it's a it's a huge cavernous stadium with a with a a track uh, a four hundred meter track around the outside. Um, everybody wearing dark. It, there was no color. That was the the one thing. And I've got photos as well. That was the one thing you you, you couldn't see any color. There was no banners. There was no flares. There were no scarves. It was just people were wrapped up against the chill. Um, you know, very much kind of that communist, very serious. Nobody really cheered, uh, and if they did, it was it felt like kind of orchestrated. So that was an odd one. Um, and then in Sfax in Tunisia, I was doing the 2004 Cup of Nations, and it was Morocco against Algeria, which is a big North African derby. 
and it was the quarterfinals. Um, and we used to get sent on these BBC, um, these courses, these kind of hazard assessment courses where you'd, you know, you'd learn how to, I, I, I never went on the, the ultimate, which was like a five day course, which was for those that were sent into war zones, uh-huh. went to Iran, Iraq, um, uh, you know, Syria, those that were kind of the hardcore. Um, and those always included interrogation, blindfolded and, and all of that. I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, heavy going, mm-hmm. but they used to send us on courses ahead of any major tournament internationally. Uh, I remember going to one before the world cup in South Africa. Um, uh, I went to one before I went to the cup of nations in Angola because there were a lot of landmines. So you, you, mm-hmm. you were kind of warned about all of, all of that. Um, and my takeaway from all of all of this was because it was, you know, be sensible, uh, have a meeting point, you know, know your exits, all the kind of the common sense thing where for me, it was I have a decent pair of running shoes and be able to outrun the person behind you. That was kind of my my rule of thumb. So we were in this stadium in in, in Sfax in, in, in the, um, the south of Tunisia. And uh, I'd been there kind of two or three weeks um, staying in the same hotel as as the night, you know, all the teams coming in. Um, that were there for group games. So, um, you know, Samuel Eto was, was in the kind of, I think he was like three doors down and, um, uh, Jeremy Engitap, who was at, who was at Chelsea for a while, who I kind of knew through, through a colleague of mine who's, who was, cause I worked with the, obviously the BBC World Service and there's a guy from Cameroon who worked for the African service and his sister was married to Jeremy's brother. It was all, everybody <laughs> knew everybody. Um, and that game, the Algeria, uh, the Al- Algeria Morocco game, um, it was one one. Went to extra time, and before the game, they were let, they were the fans were letting flares off and throwing them, and these they were throwing them into the press box. So all these you know fireworks and everything were flying through, and you know we were trying to uh, there was smoke, and it, it was it was horrendous. And then at the end of the game, um, the police had done very very little. And then at the end of the game, as the Algerian fans were, were leaving in disgust because their team were 3-1 down deep into extra time, they baton charged them and they started to go through with, with their batons and, and tear gas and it all started to kick off. Um, so, yeah, I've been in some – and that was a very – that was a, a tight-knit press box um, and, 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 you know, we were able to, to find a little bit of shelter. But I, I don't know, just each one has, has got its own kind of character. Um, you know, I – I, I, I was at Arsenal, Arsenal's um, new stadium. Uh, I was at the, the old Dell, which is Southampton's. That was a, a horrendous. I went to the press box at the at Camp Now in Barcelona. You've got to go up in an elevator to get to that one. And yeah, I mean, yeah, literally the players uh, are like little <clears throat> dots on, on the field. So yeah, they're all, there's all kind of quirks with, with each of them. I remember doing a game, a couple of games at Wembley. And I was with a colleague of mine who was working in newspapers. I was working in radio at the time. And we had monitors on our desk. And, and, and we're, we're commentating on the game. It's, I think it was the FA Trophy final. So we're commentating on the game out on Wembley's hallowed grass. This is the, the old Wembley. And the guy next to me who was working on newspapers, he had he needed glasses to see through his glasses. They were that <laughs> thick. They were like old milk bottles. But he's watching the monitor. So the game's going on out here. And he's up like this against the glass going, what's going on? What's going, what did he just do there? And I'm thinking, you know, just again, great memories of, of press boxes, of of media centres, of, of of characters that have helped shape my uh, experiences. And um, 
yeah, as I say, I've just, I've just been, I've just been very, very lucky. I really yeah. You've, you've mentioned characters there. Um, and you mentioned earlier, Manny Jasmine, who I want to ask you about listeners. If you don't know, Manny Jasmine works for BBC. Um, he's on the BBC world football podcast, one of my top five soccer podcasts as well. Um, I can't remember if he's, uh, you might know this, Richard. I don't know if he's born in right. He's of Iranian descent. So he was born um, in Iran, um, moved to the UK to try and get, um, surgery to correct his, um, eye condition. It didn't work. And, um, you know, he's, he's been completely blind since. I mean, yes. just, I mean, a phenomenal character. And actually, you know, the sad news over the last few days is that world football is coming to an end in, in March. They've got mm-hmm. to come back to uh, BBC World Service. And I was going back and forth with him earlier because that world football program started as a, um, it was a game of the week. And actually, mm-hmm. Bratislava was one of the trips that I went on. And basically, there were two or three colleagues of mine that lo- we love, we love football. And we wanted to go and tell some of the stories. So I went to Rome and I did, you know, um, I did the story of Roma and Lazio and, and Mussolini. And, and then I was in the Eastern Bloc and, you know, Bratislava. And I went to Ukraine and I, I was in Belgium and did uh, Union saint germain uh, I actually uh, finished top of the Belgian league last season, their first season back in the top flight after like 40 years. Um, and we did these, these games. It was our chance to go and kind of save a, um you know live football outside of the uk and 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 from that the powers that be brought about world football so world football kind of spawned from that um i actually applied for the very first producer's job on world football and they said no no, no you can't you can't do that because they kind of compartmentalized me you're you know you're a commentator we want you on the, the microphone side not the producing side so um so I, I worked on on that world football program for for probably 10, 10 years, eight, mm-hmm. nine, 10 years. So, um, you know, as a contributor, but yeah, I mean, Manny is a, just a, a phenomenal journalist. I mean, forget, forget the disability that he has. This is a guy that was at, I believe was at Azteca. Was it the, the, the Azteca had an anniversary recently? Was it 75, 75 years or 50 years or, um, and he was there. He was, he was in with the crowd. Mm-hmm. So he's traveled from London to Mexico and he's in with the fans. And, um, you know, I've got, I've got a, 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 another friend of mine, Peter White, who was, was blind from birth as well. And he was the BBC's disabilities correspondent. And it's fascinating, actually. It's, it's something I never really thought of. And he, he, he traveled uh, across the US and he was doing a lot of interviews with some, um, famous people with disabilities. Um, and who was the guy of of Hustler magazine? Uh, Flint, Larry Flint. That sounds right. Um, and I think Stone. Is there were a few few guys? And you know, he was told beforehand. You know, this guy doesn't suffer fools gladly. He's you know, he's quite intimidating. I remember Peter saying to me, "Didn't bother me." He said because I, I couldn't see his body language, <laughs> so visually he wasn't intimidating. <clears throat> me. Mm-hmm. So he said, as a result of that, he was able to get a much better interview because the whether he was glaring at him or giving him a stony look or whatever it was um but manny is i mean you know he's he's a tottenham fan for his for his troubles um but yeah i mean he's just uh, an incredible uh, journalist first of all an incredible mm-hmm. journalist uh, a, a phenomenal broadcaster a great storyteller um and uh, yeah i mean and a, and a good friend of mine so um yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm Again, privileged and and proud to to know the the kind of people that I've I've had a, uh, the opportunity to work with. 
Richard, correct me if I'm wrong. You grew up a Chelsea fan. I think I remember you saying that to me. Mm, yeah, my dad, my dad's a Chelsea fan, and my two out of my three brothers are Chelsea fans. The other one, who's now living in New Zealand, it might be because of this, uh, is an Ipswich fan. So uh, he's, he's okay. A, he's a fan of the Tractor Boy. He he jumped on the Glory bandwagon late '70s, early '80s when Ipswich were a good side mm-hmm. under Bobby Robson, won the UEFA Cup. Um, had the likes of Paul Mariner, John Walk, Mick Mills, uh, Paul Cooper, uh, Alan Brazil, Eric Gates. I can go on. I can I could list Russell Osman, mm-hmm. who of course was in the movie Victory. Yes, um, uh, Russell Osman was in that, and John Walk was in that as well. Yes. Kevin Kevin O'Callaghan, um, and and it was I think it was a friend of my dad's was an Ipswich fan whose dad had played for Ipswich. So my brother, my younger brother, who's a copper, he jumped on the Glory bandwagon and um, okay. Well, then, since he's in New Zealand, then he must really like Tommy Smith, then I suppose. But so, uh, yeah, so Tommy I wanted... Smith, New Zealand, and, and Ipswich, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But so, Richard, as a Chelsea fan, you work as the you worked as the studio match day presenter for Arsenal. How did mm-hmm. you like that role, and how did you score that given the the boyhood rivalry? Look, if they're going to pay me, I, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, look, actually, I remember, I remember as a very young kid having an Arsenal mug, having a um, a, a mug, but. Yeah, I mean Arsenal again. I mean they're just um, a, a fantastic club. Um, Chelsea, I mean Chelsea were were a, were a struggle growing up. And people, when well, the thing is nowadays, you know, the last twenty years, people only remember the Abramovich era. And mm-hmm. so when you say Chelsea, they, well, there's a there's a kind of a, a, a an element of, of of cynicism in 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 the tone. Um, you know, my my first game, I think, was nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight. It was mm-hmm. it was a game at Stamford Bridge, Charlton Athletic, a three one win for Chelsea, second division. Um, the old shed, uh, right? So prior I, I to... was, yeah, we well, actually we were in the main stand because I was seven years old. But my, myself and my older brother went back in. Subsequently, went back and we stood in the shed end. Um, that's when they had the you know the, the fencing. Um, uh, I remember being there for a for a, um, a League Cup semi final, second or third replay against Sheffield Wednesday. Mickey Thomas scored a goal. Um, I remember going in in with uh, a friend of mine who was an Arsenal fan and his dad. They were Arsenal fans, and me and a friend who were both Chelsea fans. And we had our Chelsea gear underneath our coats. We were in the Arsenal end, um, and Chelsea scored a late equaliser at the bridge. Mm-hmm. Scored a late equaliser, one one. And again, Matt, this is how, you know, people don't understand. This is where the game has changed or just the culture around the game has changed. Um, there, there was one exit. There was one exit. Mm-hmm. And so what they would do is, you know, fans were treated worse than cattle. I mean, they were herded like cattle. I remember Ken Bates, who was the chairman of Chelsea during the, the 70s and 80s. And it was Abramovich that took over from him. I remember when Chelsea, Chelsea had a period of, 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 of upsetting opposing teams when they went to their stadium by r- ripping their seats out and th- throwing them onto the field to the field. I remember they did this at Kenilworth Road one time against Luton, and there was you know there was uproar as you would expect. And Ken Bates, the Chelsea chairman, the owner, he installed electric wiring around the top of the fencing. Now they never played a game with that in place, but it was put in place, but taken down before a game would be would be played there. So, in in other words, that was the level at which fans were treated. They were literally treated, you know. And so, what happened at the end of this game um, is that uh, across the the uh, the public dress system, they said, 
you know, Arsenal fans you know, stay behind 15 minutes just to allow the, the home fans to depart. Well, of course, they didn't depart. They just stayed outside the ground and tooled up. Mm-hmm. So when the Arsenal fans departed, you're having to run the gauntlet of the Chelsea fans that are waiting, that are waiting around to, 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 to have a bit of a punch up. So, you know, I was 12, 13 at the time with, with my friend's dad. And so we kind of, we, we kind of snuck down a side street, but you know, there were, there were very tense, very tense times. You look back and of course you realize that at the time, you know, you're in the shed end, you're being helped up by, by a guy who's helping you get to the front. Um, you know, you're in, you can't move. The, the crowd surge and obviously you know the, the the tragic circumstances surrounding hillsborough and you know there by the grace of god go i i mean you look back now and you think i mean how do we ever think that that was that was normal um mm-hmm. but we did um you know the all-seater stadiums now um i remember it's like you know for americans it's like the the moon landing or jfk and, and for many around the world like you know for 9-11 i know where i was on the on the day of hillsborough i know where i was on the the day of the bradford fire i know where i was with heisel Mm-hmm. I was on the continent. I was with my my youth my youth soccer club, and we were in Belgium. Um, and they would not allow us. We were at an event we were, that, that had been organised by the the host team that we were with, and we were watching the game. And then it all kicked off in, at Heysel, and we weren't allowed to leave um, the venue because there were concerns of repercussions from locals. I mean, again, I was fifteen fifteen years of age, sixteen years of age, so. Um, you know, those moments, those moments stay with you for, for, for a long, long time. Um, it was, it was an ugly time. Uh, the English game was, was, was an ugly time. And that's not to say it's gone away. It hasn't. It's just been controlled. Mm-hmm. The surveillance is better. The stadiums are designed better. The transport infrastructure is better. Um, but, uh, there's still an undercurrent there that just seems to want to have too many, uh, you know, beers and, and, and have a fight on a Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon. Yeah, well, even what was it? I think it was it was last week's episodes of Welcome to Wrexham. They had a conversation and we're having this, you know, that would have been in 2021. So obviously, mm-hmm. I feel like fan violence and just people, how they acted in public post-COVID was certainly poor. But, you know, we, we saw what happened. Was it Indonesia, I think, over the weekend as well yeah. with the tear gas and everything, which yeah. is outlawed by FIFA? It's still, all right, well, Fleming I've, Football I've Factory. That, I've seen that across Africa, you know, across Africa with, the, you know, um, in Ivory Coast, in Ghana, in South Africa, um, you know, you go back to the early 2000s, there, there was a spate of stadium disasters and they all had one thing in common, poor ticketing. Mm-hmm. And because there was poor ticketing, they didn't have an idea of how many were in the ground. So they would look, yeah, it looks full. I remember being in the Cairo International Stadium in Egypt for the Africa Cup of Nations final in 2006, Egypt against Ivory Coast. And... um I was the on-field reporter. So Drogba's, you know, he's 10 yards away from me. And I looked around before kickoff. And I'm looking around. I thought, this doesn't look right. The stadium doesn't look right. It, it held like 65,000. And then it dawned on me. I couldn't see any staircases. The crowd was so was so overblown that people were sitting on, on the exits, on, the, on the, the gantries, on the stairways out in between the seating. And so it looked like just one kind of swarm of, of people. And I'm thinking if it kicks off here, because I know what happens, they lock the gates so more people can't get in. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, what happens when you have trouble inside the ground? No one can get no, out. There's a first gear and a fifth gear. There's no kind of middle gears with the policing. So it's do nothing or fire tear gas. Once you fire tear gas, you're then creating panic. They rush to the exits. The, the exits are locked. 
and then you have the crush. And so I suspect that's what happened in Indonesia. I know that that's what happened in South Africa, at Ellis Park, in Ghana, in Ivory Coast, in Senegal. Um, you know, and it, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic that we're still talking about fan violence and fan incidents for people that are going along for a, for a, you know to watch to watch sport and, and enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. Richard, let's let's turn it back to talking MLS and talking about the Rapids. Um, you know, I'm I'm always curious about Brits or people from you know people from abroad coming in and then working in soccer in this country and where their opinions of MLS were. You know, even just talking to Jack Price when maybe the initial conversations about a transfer were going on and how his views have evolved. And now he's talking to guys at Wolves and guys in the Premier League and maybe giving a very different answer than they would have expected or their perceptions of MLS. Mm-hmm. You know, you come in. 2013 season so let's roll it back to say christmas 2012 what were your opinions and views on mls and american soccer uh, i i i wasn't i wasn't a newbie i'd done um i was fortunate enough for that with the bbc and again I, I i was a bit of a chancer as my dad would say mm-hmm. um i'd look at somewhere i'd like to go and i'd try and kind of fabricate an occasion <laughs> or a sporting event which would allow me to travel <laughs> Um, you know, I did a, a sailing documentary in New Zealand. Um, that gave me three weeks in New Zealand. But just saw my brother, which was fantastic. And I remember my boss saying, I know what you're up to. I know what you're up to. And I know your brother lives in New Zealand. I said, but the commissioning editor has said it's a good idea. And he's your boss. Um, so I, I did MLS Cup for, for three years. I did... Um, what years? Uh, 2004 in uh, at, at what was Home Depot. Uh, and then 05 and 06 were in Frisco at, at, uh, at Dallas's stadium. And actually, I met Cello. We'd, I mean, he doesn't remember it, and he, he wouldn't because I embarrassed him on the field. Um, uh, we met, uh, we, our paths crossed in 2005 in that we played in the MLS Cup media tournament. Uh, I was there with Brad, Brad Feldman, who still reminds me. Um, I, I laid a, I, I could have had a shot. It was like a, a tap in, but I laid the ball back and his wife and daughter, his daughter's now 24. Um, and Brad, who was the, who's the play by play at New England Revolution, uh, he always reminds me of, you remember that time you pulled? I said, I, I, you keep reminding me. I don't, but the fact that you do is a good thing. Um, you know, Steve Davis, I met Steve Davis, who's, who's the, the color analyst at Dallas. Um, Greg Lallis, uh, obviously brother of, of Alexi, uh, who was, was, uh, you know, worked within, within Major League Soccer. Um, and then down the years, I met the likes of, you know, Doug McIntyre. And, um, so I did, yeah, I did 04, 05, 06. Cello was on, was on an opposing team. Um, I think we, we beat them quite comfortably. Yeah. Uh, I've still got that. I've still got the jersey. And then the following year, 06, I played in the team with Lexi. With Lexi Lallis. Mm-hmm. So Greg the year before and then Lexi and we played we played against I think Brandy Chastain was 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 playing and, and um so yeah the, and that that was fascinating. It was oh must have been oh six. I think it was that was Houston, Houston, New England. Um I believe. And I was in the Houston locker room afterwards. Uh I was I was getting some interviews and I noticed Kenny Dalgleish <clears throat> walked in. Um Liverpool legend, um, you know, Sir Kenny Dalgleish. And I noticed him. And of course, you know, Di Rosario was there and, and obviously Paul Dalgleish's son was there. And I, I just kind of sidled up. I thought, I can't miss this opportunity. I said, oh, you know, Mr. Dalgleish, I'm here with the BBC. Any chance of having a quick word? <laughs> said, yeah, yeah, of course. I thought, oh, 
oh, so there's all, you know, so there's all this celebrating going on behind me. And with all due respect, you know, MLS Cup winners. But this was is a legend. Mm-hmm. He's an absolute, you know, footballing legend. And I remember I took the interview back upstairs and there's a, a colleague I still know well, he does MMA now, Sean Wheelock. Um, and I went upstairs and I, and I said, oh, I've got, got a couple of players, but I've also got Kenny Dalgleish. Who? And I was like, Kenny Dalgleish? <laughs> yeah. Is he? I went, oh, okay, and never mind. And I sent it back. I sent it back to the BBC as well. And they used it uh, on the breakfast <laughs> on the breakfast program that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, because I said to him, you know, how does this compare to all of your success? You know, European Cup winner, you know, internationally with Scotland, you know, a, a league champion with Liverpool, manager with Liverpool, FA Cup, you know, all that. And he said, this is better. This this beats everything that I ever achieved uh, as a player to see his son, to see his son succeed. So that was kind of the top line from Kenny Dalgleish. Um, so, yeah, I was doing MLS early on. And I, and I kind of followed the path. And I followed the I, – I traced it. Um, and then I was over here in 2012 – I, and I was doing something on, um, cause Montreal had just come in that year. There was talk of an, a second New York team coming in and there was kind of tentative chatter that it may have been the Cosmos uh, mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, another Florida team and it could be Fort Lauderdale. So there was this idea of, you know, the, um, the romantic in me was like, you know, you've got Seattle, you've got Vancouver, you've got Montreal, you've got all these old names from yesteryear and, you know, kind of, how does that how does that help to give them a head start as they step into the league you know they're already established as a as a known name and a brand so i remember i traveled uh, i went to mls in in new york I, I did um i did orlando did a game in orlando drove down to fort lauderdale flew um to montreal did montreal seattle um no rapids game in there there wasn't no no that and that wasn't even and and, and to, to, that goes to show how 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 whirlwind it was. That would have been June or July of 2012. I came back and did Wimbledon. Then I did uh, I did boxing. Uh, I did boxing at the Olympics. Um, so I covered the boxing at the London Olympics. Then I did uh, Wimbledon. I was a commentator for uh, uh, the tennis. And then was was obviously back doing Arsenal. Um, so it was a busy time as a freelancer. And then. I had a conversation. So that was June or July. I had the conversation with, with Tim Hinchy in the September, October, probably around this time, 10 years ago. So when I was in the US for that June trip, thoughts of, of, you know, literally eight months on, nine months on from that, I would be living in the United <clears throat> States covering major league soccer was, was not even, was not even a conversation. Mm-hmm. Was that, so that's how quick it all, it all unfolded. So, you know, uh, this is a, another, again, another long winded way of saying I was, I was aware of, of, of major league soccer. Um, and, and for me, again, coming full circle all the way back to the, to, to the very beginning, you know, I covered soccer at every level. I'd covered, you know, youth soccer, you know, boys soccer, um, you know, non league, lower leagues, Premier League, international, World Cups, Champions League. And so for me, it's all relative. It's mm-hmm. the same game. You know, people, people talk about, you know, how can you take MLS series? It's rubbish. It's, well, yeah, but you go and watch your kids play. So yeah, is MLS the Premier League? No. Is, is the Belgian League the Premier League? Is the Belgian League the German League? No. 
but it's a it's a high quality professional league, um, and you're watching the same game. It's like watching, I don't know, high school basketball and 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 appreciating it and, and applauding it, and then going to watch the NBA. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't you don't not follow uh, a certain league. I, you know, I covered the National League. It was fantastic. You're watching the game. It's a, it's an appreciation of the same game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know again those Euro snobs, those mm-hmm. that kind of turn their their nose up at, at Major League Soccer, you know clearly clearly haven't haven't watched enough of it. And and you know again you know, the conversations I have with, with with Cello down the years for where the league was to where it is now and to where it's the potential with the World Cup here in 2026. Um, and I always say to people, you know, we were we're very lucky in England, in in the sense that. Um, you know, in England, you've got a situation where soccer was around before anything else. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, entertainment was limited in the late 1800s. Um, you know, going to the theatre was for a, was for for a certain class within within society, and so sport was that release, and it had a chance to bed in and build and build communities around it. And then the sports culture followed, whereas MLS landed. It landed in an already established sports culture, media market, and 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 a, and a, and a, and a sports market, you know, within within the sport of soccer. So for them to get a fan culture, soccer specific stadiums, get the league up and running, get the investment, um, I, I don't think people realise the competition they had, not just from the sport itself from soccer itself from a culture within within the united states where and i've got friends in 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 florida and you know growing up there's a they had a daughter at a similar age to me and she played soccer she played a decent level but in you know their dad's eyes it was a girl's sport so again there were all of those kind of cultural the those walls that you had to break down culturally in this country and then you're competing with the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, baseball, college sport, mm-hmm. which again doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. On the on the, uh, you know the magnitude that it is here, the, the closest we have in England is the university boat race, <laughs> Oxford and Cambridge, you know, a, a boat race, which is an occasion. You get a lot of people turning up for that. Here, you know, a hundred, hundred and ten thousand at you know Ohio State, and <clears throat> you know it is you know national television deals. So. It's not just the the professional sport that MLS had to compete with. You know, you're having to compete with the investors. You're having to compete with with the media. You know, having column inches or or, you know or or airtime or or television rights. You're competing with 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 college sport, with with amateur sport as well. And so, you know, where MLS is now and how it's established itself is, you know, it's nothing short of a minor miracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard, I'm curious. So we've we've got the origin story about how the two of you met, even though Cello mm-hmm. will deny maybe the scoreline of the game, not necessarily meeting you. you know, I I'm took curious. one that the keeper cleared it. He scuffed it. Cello was on my left shoulder. I took it on my thigh and volleyed it back over the goalkeeper's head. I remember it clearly because I don't <laughs> score many goals. I remember it clearly. <clears throat> Cello was probably doing his laces up or, or tying his hair or something. <laughs> yeah, probably working on his. Uh, he he probably still had the ponytail back then, so we'll say oh, yeah. he was he was oh, dealing yeah. with his hair. So you know, I'm curious. You know, you're a 
a British commentator who at least typically like they like to let the game breathe and then say, mm-hmm. you know, the, the American commentator can be a little bit more in your face. And if we go all the way to the other end of the extreme, you know, it's um, a ball goes out for a goal kick and nothing's happening. And Andres Contour is losing his mind. You come in and work with Marcelo Babo, who has background in you know, South American soccer is maybe from that perspective. And you guys come together to ultimately put, you know, what I regard as one of the better MLS, you know, local team broadcast. that's very clearly for an American audience. That's maybe somewhere in between those two extremes. How do you go about building that rapport and understanding that relationship, given that previously, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't BBC World. So all of your previous radio stuff was for an English audience. Uh, no, it was, it was an international. It was BBC. Yeah, so I, 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 I um, uh, I, I'd done both. I'd done, you know, domestic and, and international audience as well. But um, the, the one thing I said when I came in here, and you know, I said to Tim Hinchy, I said, "Look, I, I, I can't, I can't change. I can't be what people may want me to be. This is, this is how I am. This is, this is my style. Some people may, you know, that's the whole problem. Some people may like it, and some people may not. Um, and and the other thing is, I can't." I can't be too much of a homer because the only thing a broadcaster has is credibility. And I've, you know, I've come close in, in, in the past. You know, we, 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 the, the club and I have had some, some candid conversations and, and they've wanted to pull me in a, in a certain direction. And, and I think they've, they've eventually understood and, and, and I'm grateful for that. The, you know, once a broadcaster loses credibility, you might as well mute it. You might as well have the mute button because people aren't listening and they're not, di- no, they're not digesting and they're not believing. And so, I, you know, I kind of push back on, on that element. It's like, look, of course, we want the Rapids to win. We want the Rapids to be successful. But I've got a responsibility. And, and, and more so when you know it's going out on ESPN Plus and people in different parts of the country are watching. You have a responsibility to the league as well. Um, that You've got to give their broadcasts credibility. And so... It was a bit of a slow burner at first. I think, you know, and I, I don't want to speak for, for, for Cello, but, um, you know, he'd, he'd had a number of kind of false dawns where he'd worked with a number of broadcasters that soccer wasn't their first sport. Um, and I think, you know, he himself will tell you that he didn't know how long I was going to stick around. He didn't know what I was, you know, whether I was any good. Um, I still don't know whether he knows whether I'm any good. Um <laughs> And so for him, it was, let's just kind of wait and see. Let's just kind of see how this, this goes. And so it was, it was a bit of a, a slow burner, but look, I mean, you know, we're, we're doing the game Sunday. He's, he's coming around afterwards. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to spend time and kick our heels back. And, 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 you know, we spend time in each other's company now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we go out to dinner. We, we, we play soccer on a, on a Sunday when I'm, when I'm not injured. Um, you know, we're we're on the phone probably three or four times a day. Uh, even when the Rapids aren't playing that week, we'll we'll chat and we'll talk and we'll, you know, did you see what happened in that game? And you know, we, we're we're very we're very good friends. Um, you know, he's met my family, I've met his family. It sounds like a, sounds like a real bromance here. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just a huge a huge um, mutual respect, and I think some of that comes from the fact that I know my li- my lane and he knows his lane. Um, and I'll often say, you know, I've never played the game at the level that you've played at. Um, so I'll, I'll do what I need to do. I'll, I'll ask the question. I'll describe what's happened and you tell us why it's happened. And, and so we, I think we've kind of had a, a good rapport that way. And 
you know, I would hope that the two of us, look, anybody who stands in front of a television camera has an ego. It's, it's whether they've got that ability to switch that ego off when they leave the studio. I would like to think that Cello and I have that. Um, you know, I don't get recognized, which is good. So that, that doesn't, there's not a problem with, with, with an ego uh, on that side. But, you know, Cello is very gracious with everybody that, that he meets and, you know, autographs and photos. And I'm often taking the photos. So <laughs> that, that impacts my self-esteem even more. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think there's just a, a mutual respect there. And I think, you know, that's obviously then grown into a, into a very solid friendship. So, um, early on, yeah, I think there was, there was an element of, okay, you know, what's he about? How long is he going to be, be here? And, um, is he ever going to say schedule rather than schedule? I think was the, the other big mystery. Okay. <laughs> do you say, do you say schedule? I say schedule. So, and I, I, and I get producers in my ear saying, go on, say it, say schedule, say schedule. So I'm like, yeah, and let's have a look at the upcoming schedule. So, show and, and I have a groan in my ears. Oh, he's done it again. He's done it again. Okay. So I've, I've never, certain, yeah. M- so maybe I, it's just I in say, my head, like my brain correct. I, I've never noticed that watching, you know, probably it's, you know, it's, I comfortably say a hundred hours of you guys on the broadcast and everything. I've never, maybe my brain auto corrects it, or maybe I just yeah. assume, so you know, it's like I, when I hear a British accent and I hear them say, fixtures as opposed to schedule well that's a bad example if i hear them oh. say table as opposed to standings maybe it's just you know growing up watching the premier league it's just my brain doesn't notice that as an issue maybe there's something wrong with uh maybe marcel is different in that regard yeah. um uh, so richard i've got some uh some rapid fire questions as well mm-hmm. um do you have a favorite rapids player or coach and we'll say both how they've acted and then maybe their relationship with you oh that's a tough one i mean drew drew's always been you know he's been around <clears throat> since the first day that i was there um, you know, so just to, in terms of longevity, uh, you know, Drew's always been a good lad. Uh, Kevin Doyle, again, we, we got to know each other on a, on a personal level as well. Our families, our families mixed same with Jack Price. Um, uh, so, so there's, there's that. Um, Gashi was always, was a character. Um, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, you know, Drew, uh, and, and, and the other thing which people don't really, you know, my family have grown up around these guys as well. Mm-hmm. You know, my, 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 my boy who's 11 now, um, you know, Drew is that, that, that great photo of them at meet the team in 2013 where Drew's on his lap. Mm-hmm. You know, James was a, was a two year old. Yeah. Um, and then they had a photo together again at this year's meet the team and James is, a, is an 11 year old. Um, and, and Drew looks the exact same. <laughs> yeah, and I got a text from from Drew the other day because I'd sent him some you know some kind of messages on on hearing his of his retirement, and he finished it, and I sent it to all my to my girls as well, and they were like, "Oh, why does James get a special mention?" Um, and he just said, "Love to the fam, especially Jamesy." <laughs> and so um, the girls were like, "Why is it?" I said, "Because you know it's just it's a guy thing," um, <laughs> and then coaches look, you know, they've all and then, then this is a thing, you know. Um, the players could could be very different towards us, but they're not. Same with the coaches; they've been very, very patient and and understanding, and you know their their time. Um, and and there's been some tough years. There's been some very tough years, and you know we we can step back a bit. It's not our livelihood, but they're all very still very gracious. They they give time. They you know interviews. I'm trying to think. I I can't even think of. There's maybe one or two occasions where a player, player is, and not it's not personal. It's just like not in the mood, not in the mood for it. 
um, because you know they've had a, they've had a bad day or there's a, a run of bad results. But you know, it's uh, I think that that culture here as well. Um, mm. You wouldn't get that in England. Um, yeah, you'd be you'd be blown out more 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 often than not, and even at the lower level. Um, so I think you know Oscar was always that was you know he was the first guy here. Obviously, a lot of years under uh, working with Pablo, got to know him very well. Um, you know, even people like Hudson, you know, Connor Casey. Last two ones that I got, Richard. Um, do you have a favorite goal call? Not the goal itself, but the way that oh. you called it. <clears throat> goal call of mine. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's probably the ones that people would expect mm-hmm. because, and not because I remember them but because I've heard them so many times down the years and people remind me of them. Um, so Jared Watts, the, it is. Jared Stone Powers, Watts, Thunderbolt. The, yeah. the, the Powers, uh, the Shinyashiki in the snow. Um, uh, and there's, there's the Kevin Doyle one, which, again, it was only when I listened back to it afterwards. Um, and I think it was against, I think it was against Seattle, Castillo, Cross, um, 3-1 win at home. And, and I think Doyle had been out with, it, with an injury and, and I think it was his back and his back with a bang. And anybody that remembers, those were the days where they used to set the cannon off when mm-hmm. the Rapids scored a goal. And at the very moment I said, he's back and he's back with a bang, they, the cannon went off. Yeah. So it was, you know, the timing. And so I'm just thinking, you know, of all the, of all the moments and of all the words that I could have, that I could have used. So it's probably the Jared Watts. And actually, you know, there's a few. There was a few more recently. It wasn't this season. It was last season. I was, no, it was this season. It was in LAFC. So it was this season. I was sat in the seat. I, I wasn't doing the game. It was a national game. So I was sat next to James. And um, they obviously play, you know, little promos and intros and pump-up videos beforehand. And I'm sat there, and I'm, and I'm kind of kind of keeping my head down. And it's, you know, it's obviously it's my voice. There's commentary going through the same. It's my voice with the commentary. And I look to my right, and James is looking up at the screen, and he's mouthing word for word every single bit of the commentary. Because obviously, you know, they play it week after week, game after mm-hmm. game. So he he knew it absolutely <clears throat> verbatim. And so he's – and I looked at him. I said, what are you doing? He said – and he said he wanted to finish the commentary. Um you know, for me to see him grow up around the club, the passion that he's got for the sport. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, it's kind of come full circle. My daughter is now dating um, one of the former players. Soccer brought me here and soccer has taken her back to Europe. So there's an element of karma in that. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think it's, it's probably it's probably the, it probably is the Jared, Jared Watts one. Probably. Okay. If, I, if I had to pick one. Yeah. Last one for me, Richard. Uh, I realize. What's next? Do you have any idea? I don't know. I mean, I've got, I've, you know, I've got a day job. I've got a nine to five or eight to six or seven to ten, whatever however <laughs> hours I, I managed to put in. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's a waiting game. I mean, we've kind of known since June that this, we've known for a few years that this deal was coming. We didn't know in what form it was going to be. Um, and then obviously we knew that it all been signed in, in June. Um, and so it's kind of been a long, it's been a long wait. And I understand, look, they, they, they don't want to tell people 10 games to go. You haven't got a job mm-hmm. for next year. And you've got 10 games to bash the league because you've got a microphone <laughs> and you've got a live television audience. So I understand the, the sensitivities around the timing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm heading off to, to the beach in a, in a week or so after the game and, 
I'll spend some time um, uh, with the family and um, and yeah, you know maybe maybe we'll have we'll have some kind of clarity at some point later this month and I'd love of course I'd love to stay involved I'd love to, I'd love to be part of of that Apple deal and and and, and carry on that's what I do you know I uh, I remember back in the day I, when I got my first job at the BBC and I remember the guy who gave me the job he said you he said you're a strange cat he said he said you're quite you know he said away from the microphone he said you're quite subdued you you're kind of quite reserved you you don't you don't say a lot he said but once that light goes on he said you light up he said you just come alive and it's true i i love i love storytelling i love that you know i i did a bit of kind of amateur dramatics there's there's, there's, a, there's an element of theater mm-hmm. um I, and, and I worked in newspapers. I remember saying to a friend of mine who was in radio, I, I want to get into broadcasting. He, he said, why? He said, writing is such an art. I said, I understand that. I said, I love writing. I do. I said, but it's the immediacy. It's that spontaneity. It's reacting and picking the, you know, being that wordsmith. And, you know, there's clearly far, far better people than me. But it's just reacting and, and, and just that live in the moment, the adrenaline rush. And clearly it's not the same as being a player. It's the, probably the closest I was ever going to get. And so, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to still be involved. And the, the, the league is still growing. It's still expanding. The World Cup is here in 2026. The sport is going to get taken to a, to a brand new level. Um, and we're already kind of amongst the, some of the, the broadcasters thinking, who's getting that first game next year <laughs> at uh, the Rose Bowl? Who's getting yep. that one? Who's getting LA Galaxy, LAFC? You know, let's all throw our, our names into into the hat for that. So, you know, th- th- there's there's big big things coming for the league. Um, and and I've often said, you know, when when the US chooses to do something and do it properly, it does things well, mm-hmm. and, and and they're doing things well. And it's a slow burner, and they've had challenges. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be fantastic, of course, mm-hmm. that fans will be able to watch the games next year as well. That's a that's a huge huge bonus. Um, again, from a personal standpoint, I'd love to be a part of it, uh, in whatever capacity at the moment, there's, there's not a great deal of clarity, but I understand why, um, hoping to get some word over the next few weeks. Richard, you are a long-winded gentleman and a scholar, and we both have other things to do today. So thank you for your time, sir. Right, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to miss you, but we'll, we'll be Likewise, in touch. Mate. Don't, yeah, don't no, delete we'll, your Twitter I'll, account. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for your time, pal. Thank you. Thank really you. Much. Thank you. Take care.